Welcome to the Well Said Podcast, conversations about what's moving markets and how Wellington management researches and implements these multifaceted ideas. I'm your host, Thomas Mucha, Wellington's geopolitical strategist and member of the firm's global macro team. Today's topic is how Russia's invasion of Ukraine has roiled global commodities markets and accelerated the global focus on fossil fuel dependence, and of course, what all this means for the world's green energy transition in the face of climate change. To sort this out, I'm joined today by two Wellington colleagues, David Chang, portfolio manager and one of the firm's top commodities experts, and Tim Casaletto, a global industry analyst and member of Wellington's energy and utilities team who specializes in Europe, decarbonization, and lots of other topics. Gentlemen, welcome to the Well Said Podcast. It's great to be here, Thomas. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Thomas. Well, let's start with the commodities impact and with David. Clearly, Russia's invasion is a geopolitical crisis of the highest order, bringing with it untold suffering and tragedies inflicted upon civilians, massive infrastructure damage, elevated risks across the board, and from a market's perspective, a new and intense focus on commodities and the flow through to inflation, to energy security, to global growth. David, what's your long-term view here on the impacts to energy, oil, and natural gas, and then the factors that have led to this position? Let me just back up and really highlight what has been one of the most positive environments for commodities even before any of this began. Coming into the year, we were looking at the lowest inventories in several decades across not just energy, but also metals and agriculture. And importantly, those inventories were continuing to fall, which really highlights that demand has been outperforming supply uh, now for the better part of the last two years. So we're coming at this from a very challenging dynamic. Very challenging. And it's tempting to think that this is cyclical, that it is demand rebounding from the depth of COVID, but it, it is much more structural. It is really the product of underspending on supply for the last five years, the last 10 years, depending on the commodity. So now let me get to, to your question, which is what is happening in the world of commodities as a result of this conflict? Russia represents the second largest exporter of commodities behind the U.S., the largest net exporters. And importantly, it's not just energy, but it's really across all three major commodity sectors, energy, metals, and agriculture. So there's a long-term effect, as, as you highlighted, which is really uh, having to deal with replacing one of the lowest cost producers of commodities over time. And, and there's also a short and medium term effect, which is increased volatility, having to replace um, a very large source of supply, and essentially having to deal with prices that could rise to levels that destroy demand. Let's dig into the uh, the short and medium term prospects right now. One of those areas of potential disruption obviously comes from the policy side. How are you thinking about the likelihood and then the market impact of potential European and Western sanctions on oil and, and even a possible embargo on Russian energy? It's very tricky. And I don't envy politicians having to navigate this environment because, again, we're coming into this with prices already 
being at about decade highs and inventories being very low. So you're seeing a inconsistent response across different regions because some regions like North America can afford to impose sanctions much more easily than Europe because of Europe's dependency. Europe is having to deal with an energy crisis again before any of this began that spans across not just oil, but also its electricity sector. So we've seen so far sanctions being imposed by the U.S. government. It's again easier because the U.S. imports much less oil and oil-related products from Russia than Europe does. Russian exports to Europe account for about a quarter of the supplies of natural gas in, in Europe. And then we're seeing other regions that are also lagging in, in their response. Now, that's the government response. What we've seen is a number of corporates, corporations really take action and self-sanctioning in essence, and essentially not waiting for governments to impose sanctions, but doing so themselves. And that's disrupting the flow of energy even before those government sanctions take effect. And we're seeing insurance companies uh, not insure um, you know, cargoes as well as tankers of oil. We're seeing refiners pull away from importing Russian crude oil and, and essentially that having to be rerouted to other regions. So, Tim, obviously there's, there's geopolitical implications here. There's policy implications. Let's bore in a little bit on Europe and the political dynamics behind uh, the sanctions and embargo issue. Uh, how are you thinking about this and, and what do you think the likelihood here is of Europe coming together and, and taking a more stringent view towards Russia? It's really difficult, Thomas, because as much as Europe would love to just end energy dependence on Russia right now, it is not in their best interest to do so. I was meeting with the CEO of a big German utility two weeks ago, and he he said to me, Tim, if Russian gas stops flowing into Europe, Germany will experience its worst recession since World War II. I mean, that is just a striking statement. And I think he's right. It's because David said Europe is so dependent on, on Russian natural gas, and there is no short-term solution to... Uh, to get off of that dependence. And so what we're seeing in Europe in the short term is the European politicians doing everything they can to prevent against that tail risk that the Russian gas stops flowing. So we're seeing coal facilities increasing production. Now that's crazy, right? We take a step back and we say, we're increasing coal production in this world of decarbonization, but that's what they need to do in order to make sure that we have some security of supply. Uh, we're also seeing more LNG infrastructure. So there are countries like Germany that have little to no LNG import facilities. That makes them very, very vulnerable to this, this idea of a world with no Russian gas into Europe. So in the short term, it's really, really difficult. And it's why I don't think that Europe will sanction Russian gas. It would be terrible for them to do so. Now, the risk, though, is, of course, that Russia decides to turn off the Russian gas. So that's why Europe is doing everything in the short term to avoid this tail risk. I will tell you, though, I have very high conviction in the long term for European energy and in the electricity sector. And that's that we will have more and more renewable energy, more than we ever thought we would have. And it's the only way that Europe can produce power domestically without having to worry about energy, fossil fuel imports from other countries is if you produce it domestically with renewable energy. It doesn't matter if we were to have a ceasefire tomorrow you know, between Russia and Ukraine. Or if we were to have 
continued escalation, Europe has already made up their mind that they will wean themselves off of Russian fossil fuels. It's just a matter of time. Now, I personally hope for Europe's sake that the Russian gas continues to flow and that they can reduce that dependence in a more orderly fashion versus scrambling in the short term, forcing industrial facilities to curtail gas, etc. The short term is very uncertain, but the long term is very clear. We will have more renewable energy and more energy infrastructure in general in Europe uh, just to avoid this situation in the future. So that might be you know, one of the only silver linings here of this crisis is that it accelerates the focus on renewable energy and gets us there maybe a little bit faster. But let's talk about the bumpy road between now and that that moment. You know, this brings up the topic of uh, U.S. production, energy production, other regions and countries that might try to fill in the gap. How are you guys thinking about who steps up here and what does that look like? And we'll start with David. Again, this is tricky because if we think about the last 10 years, there's really been pressure on the energy industry to be more disciplined about its production. And we were facing a situation where oil production, gas production was far from scarce. It was abundant. And the world got used to cheap and abundant energy as a result of that. Now, this is the ultimate test for the industry. And so far, we have seen a complete lack of production response from U.S. producers. And that's where really a big source of potential exists for closing this, this gap. In speaking with the CEO of one of the U.S. exploration and production companies a couple of weeks ago, he made a very clear statement. It's very easy to be disciplined when prices are low, but really the discipline has to show when you are in an up cycle for the commodity price. And so far, they're showing that discipline. So who else can close the gap? Well, obviously, OPEC. And so far, OPEC is very much sticking to their stated production plan of bringing on 400,000 barrels a day per month through September. And by not deviating from that, they're really showing, again, their own discipline. Meeting with the Secretary General of OPEC about a month ago, there was no intention to accelerate anything, to have an emergency meeting really to, to fill this gap. And it was also clear that because this conflict involved one of the members, if you want, of OPEC plus in Russia, other members of OPEC plus did not want to take share away that they might be losing. So you're not seeing any response so far from these two, which uh, leads to the response that we saw, which is a government response uh, with the release uh, of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. It was historical release in terms of its size, in terms of uh, its pace. feels like a Band-Aid, though. It is a Band-Aid. It's a very large Band-Aid, but it's a very large Band-Aid against a wound that is historically large as well. And so it can buy some time. But if anything, it, it doesn't fix a structural situation. So if energy is seen as more strategic right now, given the geopolitical backdrop, and OPEC isn't playing ball, what's the outlook for incentives from the U.S. government first to try to create more production? So the U.S. government has to be creative at this point because the SPR release, the Strategic Petroleum release, if anything, is further discouragement to the ENP industry to accelerate. And... Yeah, there, there's also this concern because 
of what happened two years ago with prices going to extremely low levels, negative levels. I know only for a day, but it's a day that will always be remembered in the energy industry. That type of volatility and and that down cycle is still a concern to the industry to ramp up production at a time where prices might roll over. I think it is on the U.S. government and other policymakers to think about how to provide some long-term incentive, and it may be you know, guaranteeing a, a higher price. There's also the idea that the SPR release today will have to be filled in the future, and so can it be filled at a price that incentivizes the industry to start spending again? But I, I think what's important is We've been conditioned to think prices rise, response from producers happens immediately, and it's not the case at the moment. There's a lag in time. There's a shortage of a lot of the key inputs, whether it's labor, whether it's sand, whether it's pressure pumping equipment, rigs themselves, and the idea of bringing on all of of these inputs at once is very inflationary for the industry. And, and it takes time. And it takes time. So it's not a question of three months, but it's a question now of six months, of 12 months before that production can respond. On this question of timing, Tim, you said you're very confident that we're going to have a renewable future here and this accelerates this. What is the time frame for this? Are we talking five years, 10 years longer? Or you know, does the Russia situation measurably impact that time horizon? I think that Europe is doing everything they can to accelerate the green build-out as quickly as possible, but there are still just some natural bottlenecks in accelerating it too quickly. For example, David mentioned you have labor, you have uh, raw material inflation. You also, the big issue in Europe is permitting. So again, to use Germany as an example, to build a new onshore wind facility in Germany, I've been told by the renewable developers that it can take up to eight years from the time that they decide they want to build an onshore wind project to the project actually being operational. It should not take that long. It only takes a year to build a big onshore wind facility once you start construction. So it's seven years of logistics and planning that Europe really needs to accelerate that. And the EU has said that they're going to try, that that's going to be a key priority. But they've been saying that for a while now, and we still haven't seen evidence of it. So I'm a little disheartened of how that will actually play out. We'll see. Another potential solution is offshore wind in Europe. And that's a great solution. Again, the problem is it takes from start to finish, even if you have all permitting in place, it's very complex to build an offshore wind facility. It can take three to four years to build it. And we need the energy now, not three to four years from now. Some people are calling for the nuclear renaissance as a result of all of this. The problem with nuclear is David knows very well, it takes over a decade to build a new nuclear facility. And so it's not a short-term solution. The other thing I just wanted to mention, it's not just building the actual upstream part of the energy mix that's the issue. It's also the midstream. So for example, in the US, we have a huge problem with not enough midstream, not enough oil and gas pipelines. So even if the US does decide to increase oil production or gas production, it's not obvious that we can get that molecule from point A to point B. Europe is also facing that issue because they have all of this infrastructure set up to pipe gas from Russia into Europe. Well, if we're trying to wean ourselves off of Russian gas in Europe, how are we going to get the molecule? LNG facilities, of course, is a solution, but we don't have enough LNG facilities in Europe currently to do that. So this all takes time. And so you asked about the time frame. I think it's really hard to see any material change in the next five years. I think five to 10 years could be the sweet spot. And then, of course, years 10 plus, I think we'll be in, we'll be in good shape. But I am really worried 
for Europe's sake and really for the world's sake from an energy standpoint uh, over the next few years. Yeah, that sounds inflationary for, for the foreseeable future. We've been talking a lot about the supply side challenges, and clearly there are many. I want to focus for a bit on two key countries that are on the demand side, China and India, major consumers of energy, major players in the geopolitical environment. Let's start with China. And David, how do you think about China's energy needs and its commodities needs more broadly and its role in the Ukraine crisis? So I have two thoughts. One is a very tactical thought. And then one is more medium term, but certainly in the short term, the zero COVID policy has actually eased the situation in the energy market to a large extent, I would They're say. They're using less of it. They are. You know, the estimates around how much Russian oil is not finding a home today is somewhere between one and two million barrels a day. You might argue that's being fully offset by lower oil demand in China because of a number of cities being on lockdown. This will, will ease on the China side while I think it will get harsher in terms of how much oil will be lost out of Russia over time. In a way, we haven't experienced a full physical effect in the market of what these lost Russian oil barrels, molecules of natural gas, are going to have on commodity markets more broadly over the next six, 12 months, and maybe several years. Now, in the medium term, this is a very important theme, the theme of deglobalization. And I think we should expect markets to become more bifurcated across commodities, where certain countries will still be taking oil from Russia over time. And so that could create a situation where oil pricing becomes very dislocated. You'll see essentially very cheap oil flow to certain parts of the world, and other parts of the world consume oil at a $20, $30 premium as a result. That's actually what we're experiencing already today. But the other part of deglobalization related to climate change policy and net zero policies over time is China is actually rich in terms of its coal production. And my belief is over time, they will look to really contain any exports of energy intensive goods. Just to keep it for themselves. Keep it for themselves, exactly. And a good example is aluminum. China is one of the largest exporters of aluminum in the world. And they've gone from essentially subsidizing those exports to putting quotas on aluminum exports. And why aluminum? Aluminum is essentially solid energy. Most of the cost of producing aluminum is the energy cost that goes into it. So I think deglobalization means sort of a, uh, a rupturing of some of these export flows out of China that we've been conditioned. Yeah, that's really interesting. And this bifurcation of the energy market is consistent with this geopolitical view that I've had for a long time, uh, that the world is splitting up um, into two different poles. And I think that will be reflected in specific markets, in strategic sectors. Uh, energy and commodities now is clearly uh, one of those sectors. So thanks for bringing that up. What about India? India is one of the fastest growing sources of demand for oil, for coal, for natural gas, and many other commodities. Not self-sufficient. And if anything, commodities are the largest source of the trade deficit that India experiences. So the two effects... One is India is continuing to import, for now at least. The governments are not imposing any pressure 
on the Indian government to ease its imports of Russian oil because of, of its importance. But second is really thinking about the inflationary impact that this will have. And this is a much broader theme that Tim and I are often talking about, which is the social impact of higher energy prices, higher food prices, because there's such a more direct flow through of higher energy costs and higher food costs to poorer parts of the population globally than there are in, in many developed markets. But even within developed markets, the lower income parts of these countries are experiencing this stress of higher food and energy inflation disproportionately. Going forward, I think it's really important for us to think that restoring energy security, restoring food security is going to take time and is going to be very expensive. In other words, highly inflationary. Yeah, listeners of this podcast will know that I, I harp on this point, this correlation between food inflation in particular and revolution. We've seen that over and over in history, recent history from the Arab Spring to you know longer history, the French Revolution. But really, you know, there is a concern in geopolitical circles about inflation roiling domestic politics. Tim, I'm curious about what this dynamic might mean for politics in Europe. It's a really interesting topic. And maybe just to give some some numbers to the inflationary impacts of the energy crisis that it's having on European households, I think the UK is a good example. So one year ago, the average household electric plus gas utility bill was just over 1,100 pounds per year. And that 1,100 pounds per year represented about 4% of the average household income in the UK. This bill has increased over the past year from that 1,100 pounds to close to 2,000 pounds a year. So a 75% increase versus a year ago. And the problem is that these utility bills, electric and gas bills, they're on a lagged basis. So even that 2,000 pounds a year is not reflecting the current prices that we're seeing. And so when I estimate what that bill is going to do in the future, I think that in six months' time, it's going to increase to 3,000 pounds per year. I mean, that's a 1,900 pound per year increase in the annual electric plus gas bill from just from the middle of 2021. That's going to go from representing 4% to 10% of the average UK household income. It's not unique to the UK. All across Europe, households and industry are going to be feeling this massive energy inflation, they felt it a little bit already, but it's not going to stop. After a year's time, it will depend on how energy prices evolve. But because of that lagged effect, I don't think that Europe's economy has felt the full impact quite yet. And I am worried about that. Your question, Thomas, is on the politics of it. I think it has the potential to get really scary. But I do think that as we see this inflation manifest itself through it's very regressive in nature, as David said, it really impacts the lower class much more. And I think we could see some interesting political outcomes because of this, because if people, especially the lower class, the middle class, they start getting desperate just for a better, higher quality of life, they just want change. And I think that politicians, especially more extremist politicians, can promise that change. So it's something that we're watching quite closely as it relates to the stocks. You know, it's, it's tough to know what the impacts will be in the short term. But the way I think about it is it just increases the risk premium that we demand from, from places like Europe. And so as discount rates go up, you could argue that valuation should come down to reflect that higher risk. That's the framework in which I'm thinking about it. But 
it's absolutely a risk, not something we've seen in recent years because we've been in a deflationary environment and this has the potential to to really change that landscape. Yeah, it has sort of a 1930s vibe to it. So let's talk about these investment opportunities as we move away from fossil fuels into renewables. Clearly, it's going to be bumpy. How do you guys think about where to allocate capital along this line of transition? And I'll start with Tim. The way that we're thinking about it from the investment side is, again, you're going to need a lot more domestic energy infrastructure. And so these are companies that are building renewable energy, wind and solar, companies that are building electric networks. And essentially, if you want to transport this renewable energy from point A to point B, you're going to need a whole lot more electric grids. So it's a huge tailwind for the electric network sector. And one thing that's changed, even the gas network. So gas pipelines transporting gas long distances and the uh, smaller gas pipes going into people's homes. I used to think that was an area of no growth. This has changed that. It won't be massive growth, but you should have low single digit growth even in the gas infrastructure space. So the long term, it's quite clear. We're trying to align ourselves with companies that have a lot of gearing towards these growth opportunities. And we're also trying to invest in the companies that have very clean balance sheets because, as I said, the short term, it's uncertain. And I want to make sure we're investing in the businesses that have the ability to ride out that short term in order to capture those longer term opportunities. And I think the U.S. has a huge structural advantage. Of course, the U.S. is also feeling this inflation to some extent, but the price per molecule of gas in the U.S. is a fraction of the cost as it is in Europe. And that just puts the U.S. economy, in my view, at a much more favorable starting point versus Europe. David, what's your view? Just to put a number to this, you know, you're looking at natural gas prices in the U.S. that are probably around a quarter, maybe less than natural gas prices in Europe, even though natural gas prices have doubled already over the course of the first few months of this year. This is controversial, but energy is a huge beneficiary. This is sort of the paradox of all of this renewable energy is it takes a lot of energy to build it. It takes a lot of highly emitting metals to build that renewable energy. And it also takes a lot of agricultural commodities away from food towards biofuels to be able to supplement some of the gap that we've been talking to already. And I think this is the, the constraints still are there that make it very difficult to invest in traditional energy, to invest in metals and mining, and even to invest in companies that are linked to fertilizer production. This is sort of a, a return of this old economy sectors and their importance, even though we're talking about new economy. You've both been hinting at this, but I want to address it straight on, which is the broader ESG, environmental, social, governments impacts here, not only of the broader energy transition, but also what the Russia invasion of Ukraine is doing to this. How are you guys thinking about the ESG impacts? And I'll start with Tim. This is one of my favorite topics. So thanks for asking the question. I think this is a real good example of what I call the E and the S colliding. So the environmental and the social really colliding. And so let me just unpack that statement a little bit more. You have utility bills across Europe skyrocketing. And that's really because power prices in Europe have skyrocketed. What sets the price of power in Europe? There are two main things. The first is the price of natural gas. And the second is the price of carbon. So natural gas prices, they were really, really high before the invasion because of a tight global supply market, which David talked about at the beginning of, of our discussion. You could reasonably argue that part of that low supply growth is because 
the financial markets and politicians have been disincentivizing production growth. And so we have less supply that causes prices to go up, higher natural gas prices, higher power prices. Then you have European carbon prices, which have quadrupled over the past two years. And this is purely driven by policy. The, the EU is essentially gradually reducing the number of carbon certificates in an effort to boost decarbonization. So clearly there were good intentions by politicians all meant to promote the E and help decarbonization. We wanna produce less oil and gas. We wanna raise the price of carbon to disincentivize fossil fuel combustion. All very good intentions, but it's terrible for the S because again, it's caused prices to skyrocket. And I said this earlier, but what's disheartening is it's really regressive in nature. It's not impacting the, the upper class. It's really having a massive impact on the lower class. Somebody explained it to me a little bit by looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. At the very bottom of the pyramid, you have physiological needs. Then at the top of the pyramid, you have self-actualization. And I think that when we think about the social aspect and having a reasonable price for whether it's energy or food, you really need that in order to satisfy the bottom of the pyramid. And so that's the, you know, the basic need for food, shelter, water, et cetera. I think the environmental goals and decarbonization, that's not on the bottom of the pyramid, that's somewhere further up. So I do think that what we've seen throughout this crisis is that the S is more important than the E in the short term. We need to be able to provide households with affordable energy, affordable food, et cetera. And I do think that all the environmental goals of the world, that comes after the fact. So it's this real big tension between the E and the S. And I think the S is, will win over the long term. And I think that's the right thing for society. The E we will tackle, but it's not going to be in the next few years. I think that's going to be you know, closer to the end of the decade. David, we have to rethink ESG. It's that simple. And Tim provided exactly the right reasons why. The pendulum has swung far too far towards the E, the environmental side, at the expense of the S. And I couldn't agree more. And when we think about the social side, it tends to be very micro themes that we're looking to address, whereas the environmental side is something that's very macro. It's climate change. It's something that's affecting every person on the planet. I think we need to rethink the S especially and bring to the fore what Tim just explained, which is how do we resolve this issue of energy security and food security in the longer term and in the shorter term as, as well, of course. I agree that the ESG frameworks are certainly coming under under challenge, not only in commodities and energy, but also in defense spending. There's a debate out there now that defense as a public good is now a much more saleable argument given what's been happening in the Russia-Ukraine situation. And so yeah, I agree from my perspective. I think uh, there, are, there are changes afoot. I think the tensions are starting to build for investors. If you look at what was the best performing sector last year, energy, energy is off to one of the best starts again this year amongst the different sectors. This is going to put pressure on investors to reconsider whether this persistent underweight to, to energy can be maintained. I think it should be a compromise, especially when you think about the capital intensity of the energy sector, of the mining sector. And if we are heading into this world that becomes more and more deglobalized and we have to bring supply chains onshore across regions as opposed to being able to depend on supply chains halfway across the world, that's going to be very capital intensive and also emission intensive. So we need to be able to compromise going forward on this, on this part of things. And I think 
there's some parts of the investment community that feel that being positive on the conventional energy sector and also the clean energy sector are mutually exclusive. And I don't think they are. I think that you're going to need all the clean energy that you can get in order to satisfy the E. But I also think you're going to need more and more conventional energy supply to satisfy the S. So I don't think that owning both sectors are at odds with each other. I actually think that it's much more consistent than only being on one side or the other. I think they really need to come together. So to David's point about the investment community needing to rethink ESG, I think he's spot on. And I think that you need both conventional energy and renewable energy to get through this crisis. So it's not an either or, it's an and. Yes. All right, I'd like to wrap up this conversation or begin to wrap up this conversation with a few questions on both of your research process and philosophies. On this Russia invasion, which you know is likely to be so transformative on so many different levels, how has this event changed your long-term views on how you approach your research? I'll start with you, David. A much wider range of outcomes. You know, I think it's very tempting to come up with target prices for commodities, for stocks, but we have to be open to the uncertainty and the very wide range of outcomes and also the irrational nature of, of um, humanity. <laughs> there you go. That's the best way to put it. You know, this has been two years, three years where we've had to deal with so many unexpected, unprecedented events. Uh, is this going to be the norm going forward? It's really approaching our process with a lot of humility. And humility means wide range of outcomes, wide range of scenarios, and being open to a lot higher volatility in commodity prices going forward. Yeah, not only in commodity prices, but in life in general. Outcomes of any sorts. Tim, how has this changed your views? I think the main thing is that it's made me put an even greater emphasis on having alignment between the companies I invest in and regulators and politicians. And what I mean by that is that in the utility sector, these companies are regulated monopolies. And so to make sure that the utilities are carrying out a strategy consistent with what politicians want is incredibly important. And it's also important to make sure that the utilities aren't earning excess profits as a result of this crisis. So if we were to rewind two years ago, if you had a utility that benefited from higher power prices, I would say, oh, that's great. You know, they'll be able to keep those extra profits. Now I'm thinking, I'm not so sure about that. Because if a utility, a regulated utility is profiting because of this crisis, that's really coming at the expense of citizens. And I think that those businesses will be more vulnerable to windfall taxes and just to adverse political interventions. So making sure there's that clear alignment between what the companies are trying to carry out from a strategic standpoint with what the regulators and governments are asking and doing so in a way that customer bills are going down and not up. I think that's incredibly important. So that's where I'm putting even greater emphasis. And it's not so much because I think there will be opportunity for upside by following that. It's really that there will be less opportunity for downside. That is, if you're, you're a utility and you're earning crazy profits in this environment, good luck trying to keep those profits. There will be some some policy that comes out against that. So that's really where I've been thinking is really making sure there's a line, clear alignment between the companies and the regulators. Great. Well, uh, obviously, there's a lot of disruption ahead, a lot of opportunities ahead, a lot of risks ahead. We'll be looking to you guys uh, all along the way as we uh, get through this crisis and move more into the, the green energy transition. So thank you so much, both of you, for your time, your expertise, your thoughts today. David Chang, Tim Castelletto, 
Uh, Take care. Thanks, Thomas. It's been fun. Thank you, Thomas. The Well Said Podcast is produced by Wellington Management. The executive producer is Kristen Ganong. Our senior producers are Mark Murphy, Dana Wickstead, and Colin Hopkins. Our sound engineer is Mark Murphy. This episode is mixed and edited by Mark Murphy. You can find this episode, as well as others, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All investing involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Past results are not a reliable indicator of future results. Forward-looking statements should not be considered as guarantees or predictions of future events. This material was current as of the publication date. Wellington assumes no duty to update the content in the event that the information changes. This commentary is provided for informational purposes only. It is not research that is required to be prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, and it is not subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. It should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation and is not intended to constitute investment advice or an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to purchase any securities. It does not take into account the investment objectives, financial situation, or needs of any particular person. Wellington Management does not provide legal, tax, or accounting advice. The views expressed are those of the speaker and may not reflect the views of others at Wellington. This recording may not be reproduced or distributed in whole or in part for any purpose without the express written consent of Wellington Management. Please refer to the disclosure section of this podcast for complete details.